0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith. I'm a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Thanks so much to all of the listeners of the podcast out there. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for joining in. I really appreciate all of the great reviews on iTunes and the feedback I get from each one of you. If you like listening to the podcast, please leave a great review on iTunes so we can attract even more chiropractors to listen to the best in chiropractic research. You can connect with us on Facebook as well. As you may know, I have created a PowerPoint slide presentation for patients that is available on the chiropracticscience.com website. The presentation provides snippets of educational information for the chiropractic profession. And it's derived from the scientific literature from 200 peer-reviewed articles, 40 of which are from 2016. I'll be adding about 60 more slides in the near future to include the last half of the year 2016 and beginning of 2017. These should be available quite soon. You can check out sample slides and get more detailed description online. As for the podcast, my goals for producing these chiropractic research interviews are First, to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Two, to encourage collaboration of researchers. And three, to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd also like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts possible. Well, let's get on with the interview today with Dr. Martin Descarot. Dr. Descaro graduated from the Université de Québec à Trois-Rivières, or UQTR. He graduated from the first cohort of the chiropractic program in 1998 and completed a PhD in kinesiology at the Université Laval six years later. He is now a full professor in the Human Kinetics Department at UQTR and an invited professor and researcher at the Institut franco europeen de Chiropraxie in Paris and Toulouse. His current research projects involve the characterization of the neurophysiological and biomechanical effects of spinal manipulation, the various effects of pain and pain-related psychological components on trunk neuromuscular strategies, as well as spinal manipulation learning, as can be observed by the numerous articles he has published on these topics. Over the years, he has developed several strategies to better integrate motor learning principles, which have been shared with students, professors, and and those responsible for clinical training within the chiropractic teaching institutions, not only in Canada, but also in Europe. His work in this specific area has contributed to the characterization of the adjustment learning sequence and showed the importance of augmented feedback in the technical training of future chiropractors. He is currently the Director of Graduate Studies in Human Kinetics and Director of the Neuromusculoskeletal Research Group at UQTR. Dr. Descaro, it is an honor to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast.
1: Thank you, Dr. Smith. Thank you for the invitation. It's also an honor for me to be with you and be your guest today. And let's hope your audience will excuse my French-Canadian accent.
0: Oh, you sound terrific. (laughs) Thank you. Dr. Descaro, can you tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor?
1: Uh, Well, that's a good question because you're... My colleagues and your colleagues in the audience will probably be a little bit disappointed since I don't have that great story. I didn't meet an important chiropractor when I was young, or I don't have that critical moment that I, that I can recall where I made uh, the choice to go into chiropractic. In fact, when I was 19, the only thing I knew is was that I wanted to study health sciences, and the um, chiropractic program was going to, to start to open next year in Trois-Rivières. So it was new. It sounded like something fun. So I dove in, and <laughs> 20 years later, I'm here.
0: <laughs> well, there must have been something that drew you to the chiropractic program.
1: You know what? I always get <laughs> that question. And really, I, I told you the true answer. But one thing that is funny is that my, my neighbor was a chiropractor. And my dad was a psychiatrist, and my neighbor's daughter became a psychiatrist, and I became a chiropractor. (laughs) So I guess (laughs) he must have been the influence behind that.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Uh,
1: So I don't have a great story, but but I have a a funny anecdote. That's terrific.
0: (laughs) Did you ever have a chance to practice as a chiropractor, or did you end up going straight into research?
1: No, actually, I did both. I opened my own practice in Quebec City right after graduating and began my graduate studies, the master's degree, almost the same week. I did practice a few hours per week for, let's say, 10 years and stopped in 2008 when my, uh, my son was born.
0: Okay, terrific. So, how did you become interested in in doing the research? It it sounds like you started that right away after chiropractic studies.
1: Yeah, you're right. And here in Trois-Rivières, the the program is a university-based program. So, uh, students, most of them are enrolled uh, in the program at 19, 20 years old. So, we're done by 24. So, (laughs) I thought I was pretty young to to go into full time practice and i felt like something was missing and being in a university based program we had direct and fre- frequent interactions with graduate students so again i just wanted to try and i first was interested in research but after a year um um, Human Kinetic Department asked me if I wanted to teach a few classes, and I just loved it. And asked all my mentors what what should I do if I want to, to teach, and they all told me that I should go to to do my to go do my thesis, and that's how I ended up in Université Laval with uh, Doctor Normand Tisdale, who is who is. Uh, well-known researcher in motor control in fact he was trained by dr richard smith who you may know who is considered one one of the father of modern motor control theory so i was pretty lucky to be trained by him and so i got involved in my phd first to teach uh, but quickly research became the, the main thing
0: Wow. So what's a typical day in in your life like these days? Do you teach still or or are you full-time research?
1: Uh, I'm not a full-time researcher, but I don't teach a lot. (laughs) In fact, I teach only one class per year, so 45 hours. But I like your question because (laughs) people tend to believe that I work 75 hours per week in, (laughs) in order to do everything I do in research and really That is not the case at all. (laughs) I consider myself to be rather lazy, but (laughs) well-organized.
0: I like that. I'm going to have to use that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it can be uh, helpful in some (laughs) situations. So a a typical day for me would be getting at work around 7. That's early, Uh, sometimes earlier. But I'm a morning guy, so I wake up very early. I go to work, and the first two hours are usually dedicated to reading, writing, or reviewing some some stuff. It's my quiet time. There's no one around, so it's the best time for me. Uh, The rest of the day is usually a mix of meetings, uh, meetings with colleagues, meetings with grad grad students. And whenever I can, lab time. It's really important for me to, to go see the students not each day, but if I can, each day, go to the lab, try to figure out what's going on, what are the problems, and try to solve the problems with them. So that, that's pretty much uh, the typical day. I'm also head of uh, graduate studies in human kinetics, so I have 10 to 15% of my time dedicated to administrative work, but that's a small part of, of a typical day. And I usually get back home around four to play baseball, hockey, or basketball with my son.
0: Ah, that's terrific. Well, you've certainly been very productive in in research. And I'd like to talk about a few of your publications, which have been published in in excellent peer-reviewed journals. So let's go ahead and and dive in. And I know one of your areas uh, of interest is probably an area of interest for many chiropractors, and that is the area of how do we learn how to do our chiropractic adjustments. Could you tell us about what you've learned over the years uh, with with those studies?
1: Yes, of course. As I said earlier, I, I had the chance to be trained by a very very well-known researcher in motor control, Dr. Tisdale in Quebec City. So most most of my PhD was dedicated to motor control and low back pain related stuff. But we we had all those classes about fundamental motor control. So I thought, how can I use that to improve the teaching of chiropractic techniques? And in Trois-Rivières, we were very, very old-fashioned. We only learned how to position ourselves until we got into the clinic, where we started to, to do the real thing, the trust, and all phases of spinal manipulation. So I thought there must be a better way, so I took everything I knew from, from motor control and applied it to, to the teaching of chiropractic technique. And to answer your question, over the year, we we learned a lot of stuff, <laughs> but maybe the two or three things... Uh, the main ones are, first, it's not that hard to learn. If you want to learn spinal manipulation, you need to do it in a um, certain way, using a certain sequence. But the basic parameters, like the control of the force you're using, or the speed of your uh, adjustment, that's really the basic stuff, and everyone should learn that pretty fast. Once you get that mastered then you can move on to the more complex skills of adapting, changing your technique, uh, fitting your technique to each of your patient but we we used to do this in a very odd way, <laughs> which was almost the opposite of everything we knew in motor control so the the lesson here if. If, is, if you apply basic notion of motor control, you will impl- improve the training of chiropractic technique. And f- feedback is an important part of it. So the, the augmented feedback is anything you can give to the, the learner more than what the eyes can see or what proprioception can tell you. So using a video, using... Strain gauge using instrumented tables or uh, or other other instruments. Anything is good.
0: That's really interesting. So have, I'm assuming you've used uh, all of these various components. Are are there ones that certain students pick up on more than others, or is there one that comes out as a clear winner in terms of augmented feedback?
1: I wouldn't I wouldn't say there's a clear winner because uh I'd like everyone to try something <laughs> so mm-hmm. of course the instrumented tables like they have uh, in France or at uh, at the CMCC in Toronto these are are very good devices because you can treat patients on them with uh, without the patient noticing so you can go through your, all your exam, all your treatment, and do your spinal manipulation as you would do in a normal clinical setting. So if you want to gather data, that's excellent because you're so close to the real thing that the feedback provided is the real one. So I guess if you have the money, if your college has the money, considering the, the instrumented table is... One of the good options, I'd
0: say. Okay, terrific. Well, another study uh, that um, I'd like to talk about um, was just recently published in BMC, Complementary and Alternative Medicine. And this was a study that was published looking at the neuromechanical response to spinal manipulation. And it dealt with uh, the rate of force application or, or a constant rate there. Can you tell us about what this study was designed to look at and 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 what you found?
1: Yes, of course. A couple of years ago, quite quite a few years ago, we we've published a couple of studies where we were looking at um, EMGs and other physiological responses following spinal manipulation. And for for all of these studies, we faced the same challenges and criticism. And the most important one was that. St- Studying physiological responses without controlling the treatment dose was a major confounding factor. So, we thought we need a machine or a device that can deliver systematically, reliably, and safely spinal manipulation. And we teamed up with the electrical engineering department here at UQTR and develop a robot that, a robot that could deliver uh, spinal manipulation safely and precisely yeah. so once we, we add that robot we started a series of study looking at force preload thrust duration and rate of force production to understand what is the active ingredient in spinal manipulation what does trigger a physiological response Response. What, what are the thresholds? And we're only starting, even if we have a couple of, let's say, four or five publications. We're only beginning to see trends and stuff that we could apply to or or, or transform in a more clinical trial. But what we've learned over the year, and I, I lost your initial question, but is, is that the... Forces as an effect, trust duration as an effect and preload as an effect, and you can modulate all of them and trigger different responses, so we don 't know yet what is the the precise ingredient on which we should focus, but we 're getting there
0: okay so um, so you can modulate those few parameters that you just mentioned, and depending on what the patient presents with, uh, for example, if the patient came in and they had muscle spasm, would that give you an insight as to what kind, like how fast to deliver the adjustment or what kind of preload force may be most appropriate? Is that where this kind of research may help us out?
1: I'd say in the long run, yes, Clearly, there are um, in the last study we showed that the the force seemed to be the the important parameter for uh, vertebral movement, but that uh, rate of force production seemed to be the parameter which would influence the neuro, neuromuscular response. So, depending on as a clinician what you're trying to do maybe you could modulate one or the other but i don't i need to be cautious here because when trying to find direct clinical applications derived from mechanistic studies uh, you really need to be careful so these sure. studies are conducted to to better understand the underlying mechanism of spinal manipulation and hopefully one day some other researcher will design a creative clinical trial based on our results. But for now I wouldn't transform those results into clinical application. Even if it looks like if you want to move the, the the joints, you might want to modulate force. If you want to trigger muscular response, you might want to play with the rate of force application. But, it's probably a little too early to, to go beyond that.
0: Okay. So with the force, uh, the rate of force application, was it a faster rate that triggered more of a neuromuscular response?
1: In one of our studies, we've looked at uh, the truss duration. So if you in- increase the speed of your spinal manipulation, the EMG response will increase. Uh, in another study, we showed that if you increase force, the, the response will also increase. So in the study that we're currently talking about, we thought let's keep the rate of force constant and see if the EMG changes or not. So it, it did not did not change much, even if force was increased and speed Modulated to keep a constant rate of force. It didn't seem to influence the the muscular response. So, and other researchers, uh, other researchers have suggested that rate of force might be the uh, the active ingredient in spinal manipulation, the one that would differentiate our treatment from another type of manual therapy, such as mobilization, per se. So. The next study we want to do is really have a range of uh, force application, a very wide one, ranging from a very fast adjustment to a slow mobilization, and see the dose response on on those physiological phenomenon.
0: Yeah, that's that's terrific. I I remember reading some studies by Dr. Joel Picard from Palmer, and if I remember correctly, the the, they were working on animals in an animal model, but what they showed was uh, a faster uh, manipulative thrust essentially triggered greater afferent input into the spinal cord, uh, assuming my brain yeah. isn't too foggy. But <laughs> well, that's what I recall. No,
1: no, it's not. You're you're absolutely right. And we've been looking at those studies too, and they, they tend to show pretty much the same thing. There's something happening around... Uh, 100 to 150 millisecond, that would be the, the trust duration. That changes the response. And that could potentially explain why our treatment are different from other type of manual therapy. But we're working on the missing link uh, between those mechanism and the clinical responses. I have a PhD student who will be presenting some of our work in DC in Washington uh, in a few weeks, but uh, that's the next step. Okay. How, sure. the, how those responses can relate to what the, the patient is really feeling.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Well, let's go on to another paper and this will be, uh, from frontiers in human neuroscience. And it was a paper about the influence of lumbar muscle fatigue on trunk adaptations during sudden external perturbations. It seems to me that, uh, there are many studies that have been looking at these external perturbation models. Um, Can you give us some insight as to uh, what you were looking at with this kind of model?
1: Yeah, and you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people doing uh, what would appear to be the same thing, but our approach is a little different. Uh, First, we're using i-density EMG. So on each side of the back, we we have 68 electrodes. So instead of looking only at muscle amplitude or EMG amplitude, we're looking at patterns of recruitment, and that is one of the study we've published, uh, looking at how does muscle fatigue change the the response to to uh, an external perturbation. But we're currently looking also at the effect of uh, experimental pain and the effect of creep creep deformation. So participants just stay in full flexion for half an hour, and then we test them using the same uh, perturbation test. And the overall goal of these studies is to try to determine if... uh, the same because all the the, the participants they go through the, the the three different protocols so pain fatigue and creep deformation and what we're interested in is to see do they adapt the same way regardless of the, the fatigue pain or creep deformation. Do we adapt using one given strategies or are strategies triggered by the condition? So it's we're trying to figure out how do we plan and how do we respond to those perturbations. And one day we would like to do the same thing with uh, patients with low back pain because one of my uh, hypothesis is that people with low back pain have less strategy to respond to everyday perturbation they find the way to to do their daily living activities and they stick to that plan <laughs> to avoid any further injuries so that that's the kind of work or the the overall goal of those type of studies
0: Wow that's great so now in this particular study where you used a, a lot of the uh, a greater density of EMG electrodes, you you found that muscle fatigue led to a reduced spatial distribution of back muscle activity. What does that mean exactly?
1: We used exactly the, the the same electrodes or high density uh, matrices in other studies, and what what we found is that during muscle fatigue. Um, the recruitment changes. It it at the usually at the beginning of the fatigue task, the um, muscle or the part of the muscle that will be recruited is um, towards the center and a little bit higher in the spine. And once fatigue uh, grows or or develops uh, in the muscle, the um, you'll see the recruitment will be under, let's say a little bit further down the spine and laterally. So you, that's the way most of the subject would adapt to, to muscle fatigue. And in that later study, we showed that the subjects were a little bit uh, less able to adapt Uh, to the perturbation once the muscle was fatigued so the next question is is that the same during experimental pain is that the same during creep deformation we don't know yet but if we there is one pattern of adaptation which would probably be surprising I, I think everyone has its own but if you can figure out what's the adaptation in one patient you can Perhaps better target your rehab process.
0: For sure, well, you know when when I hear you talk about the changes in the recruitment patterns, it makes me think, especially with people who have pain, low back pain. Uh, there's lots of physiological changes that are going on uh, with people with back pain. For instance, uh, transitioning from a greater percentage of type one fibers in the low back muscles to type two, and so maybe that's in a, leading them to be more susceptible to fatigue and altered recruitment patterns and it's just a, an amazing process of how how the coordination changes to allow the allow the patient in this case to accomplish the task
1: yeah you you're absolutely right and there are, there are thousands of studies describing changes anatomical changes physiological changes and we just need to find uh, perhaps what is the, the key factor there, because they're all related. One must trigger the other, but where does that start? I think that's what we need to find.
0: Perfect, perfect. Well, let's talk about another study, and this one uh, came out in the journal PLOS One, and it was entitled Physiological and Psychological Predictors, of short-term disability and workers with a history of low back pain, and it was a longitudinal study. Can you give us uh, an idea of how you came up with the study and, and what you found in that?
1: Yeah, well, the study was funded by the Workers' Compensation Board in Quebec, which is called the Institut de Recherche en Santé Sécurité au Travail. That's a little French.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me to say yeah. that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there, uh, especially in in Quebec, there was quite a few studies published on the the, what I would call the severe cases of low back pain, but not much about your everyday back pain, where people go to work but are probably less productive and might miss a few days uh, per year of work. So we targeted that population and recruited only uh, people who were workers were currently working but had an history of low back pain where they would have missed a few days or a week uh, of work in the past three to five years if I remember correctly. You, you probably know, <laughs> know more than I do. It, it started a long time ago. <laughs> and so... Working with one of my colleagues, Mathieu Pichet, who is also a, um, a DC PhD, he's the pain specialist, so he believed pretty firmly that uh, some of these patients had some kind of problem or changes in their pain inhibition process, and he wanted we wanted to see if, first, can we... Measure some changes in these patients, and then, if changes are present, can can they predict future disability in those workers? So that that was the original idea. But we we've published a cross-sectional study first, showing that when you you use experimental pain and you test the, the, the pain inhibition process, you you can see differences in People with low back pain when when compared to LT subjects, so we were quite positive that uh, it's going it, it was going to be a, a good predictor.
0: Okay, so with the pain innovation, the way you measured it is it you elicit some sort of pain experimentally and then and then you apply some sort of uh, treatment and then remeasure. Is that how is that how you um, look at it?
1: Not exactly. Um, what we did is, uh, we use what we call a, a thermode, which can produce heat, and it can produce heat very, very fast, and in a, in a quite a wide range. So you can have non-noxious heat, so heat without pain, but you can also create uh, levels of heat which are painful. So we adjusted individually, uh, the temperatures, so to produce pain in the back of our patients, that's not nice. But <laughs> <laughs> that was the purpose of the research question. Sure. And and then uh, pain inhibition was tested by uh, putting the one end of the participant in very cold water. So if you have a what we call a second pain, you can. Uh, create some inhibition or reduce the, the first pain, which was the, the back pain. So the difference between the two, it, it's, it's quite easy. You, you just take a, a pain measurement, a typical VAS measurement on, on, a, on a scale with the experimental pain, and then you take another one when the the end is in cold water. And you can see that there's a pain inhibition following uh, the, uh, the ad- addition of the second pain. Okay. So that's how we measure it.
0: Okay, great. Well, let's uh, talk about another study, if we could, uh, and that would be, uh, well, it's a, a trial, I guess. Uh, I don't know if it's currently done or, or not, but it was published in the journal Trials, and this was Effects of a Prehabilitation Program on Patient's Recovery Following Spinal Stenosis Surgery. And it was a study protocol for a randomized uh, controlled uh, trial on seniors receiving manipulation and exercise. Could you talk us through that paper?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So I think the paper was published a year ago or so. Okay. Can't remember. Um, So that was the protocol. Uh, Of course, this is not a... Trials are never easy, but this one is quite difficult because uh, we're not integrated into the hospital, so patients, uh, they have to travel from the hospital to the university or to the lab. And that that was quite challenging. So we decided to, to begin with a pilot trial just to see if it was feasible before we, we went on with a full-scale study. So the good news is that the, tri- the pilot trial is completed. Uh, one of my students, who is also a, a chiropractor, is working on the paper now. And she will be presenting uh, locally the, the results in a few weeks. But I can share a little. Not, maybe not all of it, but <laughs> just a little.
0: Sure, yeah, that would be great. Whatever you can share.
1: Yeah, so um, we recruited 40 patients and... Half of them were assigned to the pre-ab program, which is rehabilitation before surgery, uh, in spinal stenosis patients. Uh, not sure if you mentioned it, but so 80% of the the participants completed the the full six week exercise program. So that's a a good adherence rate. We were happy, and 87% of them were happy the overall uh, satisfaction rate was close to 95 so in terms of feasibility we were quite pleased and everything went went smoothly with the the neurosurgeons and and the hospital so that was the good news in terms of clinical outcomes um, there was quite a few of them that showed promising results I'd say So we found um, reduced leg pain in the pre app group versus the control group. And um, 70% of the participants in the pre app group reported uh, improved global status. So we were quite happy. Uh, Back pain didn't change much. Although leg pain is the main thing in stenosis, um, and although not statistically significant, we f- we could see some trends uh, in favor of the prehab group for kinesiophobia, uh, lumbar extensor muscle and, uh, endurance, and total walking time or ambulation time, which was measured on a measured on a treadmill. So, it was enough for us to move on to the full-scale clinical trial, which is currently going on.
0: Oh, that's terrific. What kinds of things did you have in your intervention group?
1: Uh, it was mostly exercise. A little bit of advice, and I don't like to call them that way, but let's say motor control exercise. If
0: Sure, sure. Means
1: something. <laughs> I, I think that's uh, n- n- not specific at all. But um, we had to tailor the, the program for each of the participants because the, the range of disability was quite astonishing. Some of them came in uh, with almost in a wheelchair. Wow. Uh, and some of them were still working. So a lot of disparities. But that's okay if we move on to a bigger sample that that should be taken care of. Just out of
0: curiosity, uh, who were the people that were doing the training with these patients?
1: Um, My grad students, Andréan, who is a DC, did uh, all the physical exam and the outcome assessment. Okay. And a kinesiologist from the the human kinetic department did all the, the training sessions. Terrific. Yeah, and we're currently, well, we just submitted a grant. I'm not sure I can tell you that, but (laughs) um, to partner with uh, Hong Kong University and Arnold Wong, who is also a DC PhD there, maybe you know him. And we submitted a grant to extend the trial to to Hong Kong and China. So in the next year, there should be uh, a group, Another experimental group in the other control group in China. So we hope to double our sample size.
0: Oh, that's terrific! Now you mentioned that some of your grad students are going to be at DC 2017. Uh, I'm guessing you're going to be there as well. What what kinds of things uh, are you going to be presenting? This paper, or what papers are you going to be presenting there?
1: Um, <laughs> quite a few. <laughs> yeah. I had to go back to the schedule to make sure I didn't forget any one of them <laughs> um, so if I'm if I'm correct I think we have eight platform and poster presentation oh fantastic And they're quite diverse and it's it just the it, it shows how, how well we collaborate with others of course this is not all my work um, so from our lab there'll be a study uh, discussing headache and muscle fatigue uh, tension type headache uh, that's a platform, and I have another student who will be presenting the the effect of uh, spinal manipulation on stiffness uh, using our robot, so that's quite interesting too. And another one, that one is a poster, will be comparing mobilization and spinal manipulation, uh, it, their effect on pain, stiffness, and... and, 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 and. Well, EMGs. I'm not sure we'll be presenting the EMG though. Okay. And there's a few other ones, but these are mostly collaborations. And as for myself, I'll be judging the poster award competition.
0: Oh, fantastic! So
1: that's yeah, that's quite fun.
0: <laughs> Good stuff. Well, before we uh, before we part today, I just had a couple of other questions. Uh, first one: What do you see as some of the most important issues facing chiropractic research today?
1: Hmm. How many times do we have?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe we need the afternoon for that one. That's right. Uh, well, I, I, yeah. Let's focus on three things. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, the first one, uh, I guess, would be to for the profession and and the researcher, the chiropractic researcher, to engage in high quality patient center research. And by that, I mean, uh, and I don't want to offend anyone, but I'd say there would not be any chiropractic research, but instead, research done by, ch- by chiropractors. Uh, i don't, not sure if you understand what I mean, but I guess we need to contribute to the overall effort of getting patients better, regardless of the intervention. And I always tell my students, if eating a banana is the thing, we'll just sell bananas to our patients. That's it. But if we're the one figuring that out, that will be a big step for the profession. And of course, that's a crazy example. But I think we need to focus less on what we do and focus more on the patient.
0: Sure, sure. I like the banana analogy, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Making me hungry.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The the second thing would be, uh, I think what we need to do is to take a breather, (laughs) relax a little, and think. Uh, I feel in having done, having, being in research for, for, let's see, 15 years, what I've seen is that we are so busy busy trying to please others with our research and our research approaches that we have lost virtually all the creative process that underlies research. We just do the same thing over and over again, and we we keep getting the same results. Yes. And and each year, uh, another thing I like to do with my students is to take the number of original studies or original trials looking at headache and spinal manipulation or back pain and spinal manipulation and the number of reviews and guidelines and, and met- meta-analysis. And in some cases, you have more reviews than original trials. And that's a real problem.
0: I agree. That's a huge problem.
1: Yeah. So I think we need to to be more creative, I'd say. And perhaps fundamental researchers should talk more with, with trialists or, or people involved in clinical research. Maybe that's one of the things lacking in the profession. Excellent. And the, the, the third one is pretty basic. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be in a university-based program. And I. In fact, I'm in, in a, I'm not in the chiropr- chiropractic department. I am in human kinetics, but we need to figure out a way to have more protected time for researchers to have more incentive and to have their work recognized and celebrated. Uh, there's the research culture is has improved a lot, but now it it, it we know that research is important. Now we need to figure out a way to implement the research approach. And it's sad to say, but funding and protected time is the pretty much the basic thing a researcher need to to be productive.
0: Absolutely. And and I think you hit the nail on the head with the research culture. I really think that's an um an important part of progressing into the future because if we don't have a research culture, then who's going to donate to, you know, contribute to our research dollars. Uh, So I think, I think that is a, is a necessity for the profession is creating this research culture.
1: Yes, you're right. And perhaps uh, Quebec and Canada is, (laughs) is, is, a good model because you have many researchers funded by government agencies now, and we don't need to rely on the chiropractors or uh, on the insurer or our our friends to fund our research. We have people thinking that, wow, chiropractic research or chiropractic uh, research done by chiropractor is a good thing and it is helpful. So that is the way to go for me.
0: I'm I'm so glad you mentioned that about the the universities and and the funding that way. I, that's that's huge, and I wish we had something similar here in the United States. Uh, I know in in Denmark it's something similar to Canada. I'm I'm sure it's different, but uh, the concept is somewhat similar. And so those are Absolutely. both great models.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think they're they're even luckier in Denmark. Not sure they have to apply for grants. They just get the money. <laughs> but we would have to talk to our colleagues to make sure I'm not saying crazy things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, how can I get to Denmark? That's the question, I guess. <laughs> you—you yes. well,
1: you, you, Perhaps we need to learn the language first. And I heard that's the, the
0: tough part. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> well, a goal of this uh, podcast is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to aspiring students or chiropractors who want to engage in chiropractic research?
1: Well, I would have only one advice, and it is based solely on my own experience. Um, When I look at my grad students, the ones that that are that I am currently training or the one who graduated and are not working in universities or other agencies, all of them got involved very early into research uh, in their first or second year uh, of, of chiropractic studies. So as an undergraduate students, they were in the lab, they were helping, they were getting uh, funding to stay with us during summer and Almost all of them got funded throughout their master's degree, their PhD studies, their postdoc. So if you want and you know you want to pursue research, get in, get involved as soon as possible.
0: Terrific advice. Well, Dr. Descaro, I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. It was a fun interview. I, I learned a lot. I, I've been wanting to have you on this podcast for a long time. So thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you, and hopefully I'll see you in Washington, or not?
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, I've got a presentation there as well.
1: Good, I'll be happy to see you there.
0: All right, we'll meet you there. Bye-bye for now. Thank you, bye. Thanks again to everyone for listening in to today's interview with Dr. Descaro. If you'd like to hear previous interviews with chiropractic researchers, please check out chiropracticscience.com or iTunes or other podcasting apps. I'll be in Washington, D.C. in a couple of weeks for D.C. 2017. If you are not aware, D.C. 2017 is going to be the largest chiropractic research conference ever. I'm so excited. I hope some of you will be there also so we can catch up and discuss the latest in research. Take care.